Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson. Hello, Don. JJ, you're going to love this week's episode. Oh, I am all in. Okay, let, let's, let's do a teaser I know that it's, sometimes here. it's hard to get me excited about stuff, <laughs> but with this one, over the moon. Okay, we're going to interview a writer. Yeah. And you already know who it is. Yeah. Our, our, people are going to have to guess. Yeah. Okay, he wrote Young Avengers uh-huh. for Marvel Comics. Yes. So he's a comic book writer. Yes. I mean, you know, among other things. Among other things, yes. He wrote a show called The Naked Truth Television. Uh-huh. He wrote Party of Five. Yeah. <laughs> do you know Party of Five? Yes, I do. It was like a family. Yeah. A little show had a very short run on cable called Sex in the City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a little, you know, a little known. He wrote the movies for those. I think he was involved in the movie writing really? of those two. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it did Sex in the City. Did mm-hmm. the Gilmore Girls. Yes. Now, I've only seen like 20 minutes, like the Christmas episode of Gilmore Girls, but I liked it. <laughs> the OC. Uh-huh. Also a little known show. Is it the one where the, the girls really like the guy, but then the guy cheats on her and it's like the real word? <laughs> Yes, I think that That's is right. in there at some place. Yes. And then the, and See, then the you two do friends, but you the do two friends <laughs> like the same guy, yeah. and the one that gives them it affects their yeah. relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, okay, yeah, so I have one. seen yep. that. Grey's Anatomy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote Grey's Anatomy yeah. Yeah. with the doctor. Dr. Goodlooking. They Dr. Call him McDreamy. Dr. McDreamy. Yeah. Wrote a show called Looking. Yeah, it's actually a really good show. It's very true to life in many ways. Like people looking for the keys? Not keys. <laughs> <laughs> Not keys, relationships. Scandal is but. huge. Yes, he yeah. wrote Scandal. That's oddly enough, that's the one I haven't seen. <laughs> I mean, I've got friends who are like that. They yeah, got people are obsessed hooked. with that. This guy knows what he's doing. He yeah. knows how to hook. And then The Catch, which yeah. is right now, they're, they're is just going into right their now. second season. Yeah. That show is amazing. It's on ABC right now, 10 Eastern, 9 Central. It's on Thursday nights. So if you're looking for something to watch on Thursday nights. Oh, and he's also the pilot for CW's Wonder Woman. The yes. new Wonder Woman deal. Yes. They actually called because there, there was some big funky thing happening where the show about Batman, it was a Batman show, they rent an arena and they sell tickets for lots of money. Yeah. And people come and watch this Batman show. It's, not a, it's bigger than Broadway. I mean, it's like yeah, 20,000 yeah. people will yep. come and do this somewhere in Europe. And it was tanking. I mean, they just couldn't figure out. They hadn't opened it yet, but they couldn't figure out how to get the story right. And they, they called Alan, and Alan fixed it. How <laughs> would like to be that guy? <laughs> that would be amazing. I and don't that. know. I want to go see that show. The vast spectrum of his ability, yeah, from Batman to the Avengers to Sex in the City, yeah. I don't think people get how hard that is. No, because you don't call the guy and say, hey, "Can you fix Batman?" You go, "Yeah, he'll go shopping." <laughs> Wait, what? Because <laughs> that's what would happen in Sex in the City. Of Oh, Batman. Yeah, you just yes, let him go I see shopping, and then Batman will sit around in the apartment and talk to his girlfriends with a glass of wine. Uh, would you like that, though? I'm if he, not, I'm if he were Alfred one of the characters in Sex in the City. <laughs> to go shopping? Yeah. yeah. That would actually be kind of fun. Yeah. If they redid all of Sex in the City, but Batman. But Batman but was one it? of their friends was Batman. <laughs> the, yes. Like where you either make the Avengers like Sex in the City, the Young Avengers like Sex in the City, or you make the Super Friends like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the they never, you never League, actually see them. The Justice League becomes Sex in the City. Yeah, oh, can't, Alan, can't please do that. Tonight because please his girlfriend do that. broke up with him. <laughs> he's really upset about it. So crime just slightly upticks in the city because he's, he's had too oh, much to drink. Oh, I love it because he had too much to drink. Yeah, he's doing the walk of shame the yeah. next morning. Oh, the villain names would be amazing <laughs> i don't think alan's gonna go for that oh well anyway uh we talked to alan about writing so if you've been tuning into this podcast because you want to know more about writing and story we talked to him a lot about how you hook people yeah what needs to happen right away when he's writing a television script to get people interested and then what needs to happen and then what needs to happen and all of this my favorite part of this interview we get into the sort of magic of it all there is no formula for creating the magic of narration that actually captures the human heart. You have to sort of do that intuitively. But then I went a direction in this interview where I said, you know, we're talking to people who run businesses, so let's talk about how this relates to branding. And I'm telling you, he just kept hitting the balls out of the park. Yeah. It was really amazing. Yeah. And he affirms a lot of what we believe here at StoryBrand in terms of clarifying your message and your customer being the hero, and you have to know what they want. But also just this basic idea of service, you know, of, of you've got to serve. Your, yeah. The story is about them. Anyway, I don't want to yeah. give away too much, but one of my all-time favorite interviews here on Building the Story Brand Podcast. So you mind if we just get to it? Let's do it. All right. Here's my interview with Alan Heinberg. Alan Heinberg, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Don. You've been doing this a long time. Tell me, is it old hat by now, or do you still go back to your 
Christopher Booker, Blake Snyder, Robert McKee books and go, what am I supposed to do next in this thing when I'm, when I'm building this story? You know, it's odd because it feels like it feels like every time you sit down to write or you start to tell a story, you you actually are starting from scratch because every story has its own needs. Every character is different. You really are figuring out so much of it whole cloth. But the older I get and the sort of the more experienced I become, the simpler the process becomes too, huh. because of of the eternal truths of storytelling and and you know the rules that I use to apply to my own writing, they also apply to acting. You know, most of the stuff that I do is dramatic writing. And I, as you and I have discussed in the past, those same rules sort of govern my life as a human being as well. So yeah, I'm very curious to get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Most of your stuff these days is TV. You're writing The Catch now, which is awesome. Most of your stuff has been for television. So I actually want to dive right in because I'm going to geek out because I feel like I've got a chance to learn from the master. You sit down to write a new episode and what's the first thing that you're trying to make happen? Now, I realize that's like saying, what's the first thing you're trying to do when you write a song, right? But what's the first thing that you're trying to make happen in this story in order to keep people paying attention? Well, the first question that we ask and the thing that's sort of the hardest to pay attention to is, you know, the lead character in our show's name is Alice Vaughn. She's a private investigator and she's right. played by Mireille Enos. And the show, you know, the two central characters are Mireille's character, Alice, and then Peter Krause's character, Benjamin Jones. So primarily, the first question we ask is, what does Alice want? That's where everything starts. What does Alice want? In this particular episode? In every episode of The Catch. Do you have, I'm I'm serious, I'm going to geek out here. Do you have like a, a wall of where Alice Vaughn's pictures and her outfits and her childhood are all there and you're writing and you're thinking through this stuff or is it, am I overcomplicating it? No, I mean, we have, we definitely have a sense of what, like I went into this new season, season two, wanting to know more about Alice and what her backstory is. And Mireille Enos is an incredible actor and an incredible collaborator and partner. And she actually came up with a backstory for Alice that made sense to her and shared it with me. And I loved it so much that we used it as the basis of Alice's backstory on the show. So I really wanted to explore, spend the entire season exploring what her backstory was. So, you know, the thing about TV is if you pitch a show to the network, you have to write it right away. It should probably already have been written. Um, You just have no time. You have no time to develop a series. You have no time to write your episodes. And so you really are making it up as you go along. Um, And you have a staff of writers who are helping you and, and hopefully keeping you honest as you do that. But you know very little in advance of actually writing it, which can be great because it keeps the thing present and alive at all times. And you can sort of feel that when you watch the show. But it also allows you to adapt if you cast an actor who has a strength that you didn't know that actor had. You can sort of write toward that or a weakness. Mm. You can write away from that. But you know very, very little in advance in terms of that stuff. And you're just writing as fast, as much and as fast as you can. It must be an amazing moment when you realize this pilot got picked up and now these characters that you spent relatively little time with begin to flood into your brain as whole human beings that you're going to develop. And is that what happens where you just go, wow, we've got to develop a whole world now around this. I wonder what this, you know, the next however many years of your life have just been filled in. Yeah, it's an interesting process because the audience actually needs very little backstory. I'm not really a huge fan of backstory. I mean, I, I love that it's there and I love that we know it. But in terms of the audience being able to sort of relate to and care about the character in the moment, it's all about sort of developing a present tense relationship with the right. audience. So what's lovely about having been on a lot of different shows over the last 20 years doing writing television is that you can actually spend you don't have to reveal a character's backstory for seasons. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. On Scandal, I don't think we learned Huck's backstory until late in episode two um, and then started filling it in more in season three. So I, I don't feel a lot of pressure to sort of have all the answers right off the bat. I sort of let the actors help tell me who the character is and let the story sort of inform that process as well. It's less about, okay, I need to know everything about this character right now. And it's more about sort of getting into the character's head in the present moment and allowing your collaboration with the actor to let that character come to life in a unique and interesting way that I hope wins over the audience. The reason I asked like about their backstory is because it, it seems like that would be the place to start to figure out what this character wants. But maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it's just she wants love. 
you know, she wants to be accepted. She wants to overcome her divorce or whatever. But that's, I mean, story brand, our whole seven-part framework starts with you got to know what your customer wants. If you don't know what your customer wants, you're not going to be able to enter into their story because you haven't defined something. What's the next thing that Alice is going, you know, she wants something. What has to happen next? Well, it's identifying what the end goal is, both in herself on a character level and in the plot. You know, what is keeping Alice from getting what it is she wants? And then what does Alice do in response to that obstacle becomes the story of the episode. I imagine with with television, you've got kind of an overall epic plot, and then you have the subplot that is this particular episode, right? Kind of. I mean, you have a sense of what you'd like to explore in the character's life and psyche over the course of a season. And you may, when you start out, have a rough sense of what you think a cool ending might be. And you may stick to that or not by the end of the season. But you have no idea how long it's going to take you to get to that ending. So you've got to right. make things up episode by episode. It's organic and it flows and changes. Is that why Lost ended the way it ended? Because they just never had an idea where this thing was going? Well, I can't. I mean, I think Damon Lindelof, you know, I, I wasn't there with him throughout that process. But I think that show, you know, started as a very different show before Damon came on board. And then every season it had to sort of keep itself alive and reinvent itself. And it's just an incredible undertaking to be able to pay off every narrative thread and relationship. And I feel like that was his desire. I mean, I, I shouldn't speak for him, but as somebody who has that job currently, you really want to create a situation for yourself in that last episode or those last episodes where you pay off every single thing and it's very yeah. difficult to do yeah um, and you're not going to satisfy anybody really um, <laughs> even season finales when you you know when you think you are going to come back the following season it's very difficult to sort of pay off an entire season's worth of story and tee up story for the next season so it's quite a gymnastic feat i have to yeah, say well and you're I, not an enviable one <laughs> you're good at it though well it's very kind of you do you have a tool chest of uh things that you can throw at your character? What can we throw at Alice? You know, is there a villain that we can bring in? Is there a time crunch that we can put here? Is there an insecurity that we can manifest in her that she has to overcome? I mean, is, what are the tools that a writer uses to embed conflict into this narrative? Well, one is boredom. Boredom is the sort of the biggest wrench in my personal toolkit. Really? Yeah, just because... The, you mean the character is bored? No, if I'm bored. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I use boredom a lot. Like, I'm a very impatient audience member. Yeah. I'm a very opinionated audience member. And so I'm constantly putting myself in the audience's place when I'm breaking story to see, you know, I want to delight the audience and I want to surprise the audience and I want to make them feel things. And if I throw out anything obvious, they're not going to be surprised or delighted mm, and they're not yeah. going to feel anything. It's cliche. So I try to use what would surprise me. So I come at things sort of when we get stuck, sometimes it's like, what is the most delightful option here? What is going to make me the happiest and surprise me the most? Oftentimes, if we get stuck, I'll say, let's throw out the worst idea. Let's throw out what's the opposite of what we're actually going for hmm. in order to unlock what the issue is. But most of the time, I'm thinking about what it feels like to sit on the couch as the audience and I'm desperately trying not to be bored or to bore them. Hmm. So that's what I go to a lot. You know what's fascinating about that is yeah. you and I met a long time ago. And I don't even know if you remember this. It was years ago. This is how long this goes back. You sent me the DVD box set of Friday Night Lights. Yes. And you said, don't start it until you've got about four days with nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally think, I, you know, I kind of went, okay, well, you know, it's probably good. And I remember starting it, and four days later, I finished it. You were absolutely right. We talked about writing. You just talked about writing. We actually played with the idea of writing something for HBO or something. I can't remember. That was a long time ago. Yes. And then I started StoryBrand years later. And what's fascinating is I will sit in the boardroom with a bunch of executives for a company in Fort Worth, Texas that sells heavy machinery at auctions. And I'm reviewing their website and looking at it, and I'm thinking the exact same thing. How can we not bore the person who goes to this website? How can we hook them with something that they want? How can we define and identify and speak the challenges that they're facing so they find themselves in this brand? And It's the same sort of technique. It's just fascinating to me that it overlaps so well. I utterly agree. As a consumer, I'm acutely aware of it as well. You know, I'm constantly checking in with my inner consumer and my inner audience member. 
And I really just want to feel engaged. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything. I want to feel connected. I want to feel connected to a brand. I want to feel connected to a story. It's very human of us. I think a lot of what drives consumerism is just that need for connection. Yeah. You've identified something that Alice wants. Now we've got problems that she's facing, all sorts of problems. You're testing that against boredom. Now you talk about this connecting with the audience. Is there something that you do in these first two steps or is it step three where the audience feels a deep connection with the character that, and you're, you're intentionally as the writer making that. I mean, they call it, you know, save the cat in screenwriting yes. terms, but that almost deludes it a little bit because it's more than that. Are there things that you're doing that are causing the audience to love Alice and to want her to win? Or We're all wondering how to do this as a brand, so can we learn from you how to do this as a screenwriter? It is one of the trickiest parts of what I do for a living is creating characters that the audience is going to care about. That character has to earn the audience's love and investment. What is it about this character that has earned the audience's Mm. time and investment? And I feel like a lot of times not enough attention is paid to that part of the process. With Alice, her circumstances from the pilot episode sort of dictated the audience's uh, identification and sympathy right off the bat because she is a, a hardworking, fiercely intelligent, independent woman in a man's world, in a man's sort of business, private investigation, holding her own. Mm-hmm. She's in love with a great guy who just happens to be a con artist who is about to swindle her out of everything she owns. Mm. So from the get-go, you're asking your audience to sort of relate to Alice and root for Alice. And then all of our worst nightmares becomes Alice's reality. The person that you love turns out to be a criminal who steals everything. And then you want justice, yes, which is different than resolution because resolution would mean they kind of get together and this is resolved, but justice means he goes down. That's a really great plot, by the way. That's really awesome. Well, right off the bat, I knew I inherited that element of it. The, the catch had been made as a pilot before I got involved. It was a different show hmm. with the same narrative hook. And that version of the show sort of never really ended up moving forward. And so I was able to come in and reinvent it. Hmm. So I inherited that piece of it. And I knew that in order to make it a series, it actually had to be sort of a Romeo and Juliet love story between a PI who's secretly a bad girl and a career criminal who's secretly a good boy. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Alan Heinberg in just a moment. Welcome to the segment of the Building a Story Brand podcast that we call Marketing Myth Busters with my co-host for this segment, Kula Callahan. It's great to be back on the podcast today. She's posing like Wonder Woman. She's got a <laughs> fist up in the air. We're about to she's bust some myths. <laughs> bust some myths. So many people come to us, and here's the deal. They're wasting money on marketing, and I hate seeing it. It's a money pit, marketing is, because they're doing things that everybody thinks works, but they don't. So we have broken a number of myths in this segment, like customer testimonials being all about the company. They shouldn't be. People wanting to sign up for your newsletter they don't. And today's myth is what? Scrolling images on your homepage work really well. I hate them. I know. I think everyone who has been to a story brand workshop knows that you hate scrolling I images. I can't stand them. Visually, you know, the image is kind of, you know what I'm talking about. When you go to a website and the image just kind of flips to the left, flips to the left. And here's what's awful. When there's text on those images and you try to read the text and then in the middle of reading the text, it goes to the next It's truly terrible. They don't work? They don't work. And I'll tell you why. Companies think that they need to immediately showcase every single product they offer and every single service that they offer to their customers right from the very beginning. This is wrong for a number of reasons, but the main reason is just because it creates a ton of clutter and confusion in your customer's mind. And if you're a listener of the podcast, you know that if you confuse, (laughs) you lose. So when you give people a number of different stories to follow, they disengage because the narrative that you're trying to tell isn't directed or focused. Yeah, we say in the workshop, it's like if you went to a movie about Jason Bourne and Jason Bourne wanted to know who he really was and wanted to lose 30 pounds and wanted to adopt a cat and wanted to marry a girl, you would check out. And so when somebody goes to your website and say, we can solve this problem and we won this award and we can do this, they check out. They do check out. There has to be one, what's called a controlling idea. Exactly. 
So you've done the hard work of deciding what that one controlling idea is as a business. And the second you deviate from that and start to talk about all of the great things that you do, people disengage because they can't follow the narrative. Another interesting fact that I read about scrolling images um, is this idea of banner blindness. People see these scrolling images on your website and because they're moving, people think they're an advertisement and so they just ignore ah, it completely. I didn't even think about that. I didn't That's either. true, but it, it is true. When it you is think about true. It, it cheapens it. It cheapens it, exactly. And you never want to cheapen the perceived value of your brand, <laughs> right? Terrible. Right. So myth of this week, scrolling images, they don't work. Choose one image for your homepage above the fold. So when someone immediately comes to your site, you need one image that shows what success would look like for your customers. So smiley, happy people enjoying we your product say or that. service. Smiley, happy people. Smiley, happy people sell things. They do. A photo of the promised land is what I typically <laughs> say when I'm coaching clients. What Love is that. your brand's promised land? That. Showcase that. I like that. That's really good. Okay, listen, if you've got scrolling images on your website, according to Kula, and I completely agree with her, you're losing money. Those scrolling images might be costing you several billion dollars a day. (laughs) Is that an exaggeration? Not an exaggeration. (laughs) Billions. If you're a country. (laughs) (laughs) But it might be costing you a lot even if you're not. Listen, if you're making mistakes like this or you know you're making mistakes or there's simple things that you can fix, you can learn a lot more about clarifying your message and also a lot more myths that need to be busted that you're probably wasting money on at storybrand.com. We've got a live workshop. takes place in Nashville. You can register at storybrand.com until you get away and solve this problem over a two-day period. The problem is going to persist. How much money is it costing you every day to not clarify your message? Register right now. Get on an airplane Come to see us. We have great marketing advice. We have cookies. We have really good coffee. And puppies. And and, we do have puppies, actually. (laughs) And we have Kula Callahan. If you would like to bring Kula in or somebody like Kula, we have facilitators. They're all brilliant people. They go all over the country, and they can spend a day and a half with your company to help you clarify your message. And then we will put your website up on a screen, and we will tell you what we think, which probably we will tell you we think you're wasting a lot of money. And there's better ways to do it. So if you want to do that, go to storybrand.com slash private workshop. Again, to register for a regular workshop, storybrand.com. To bring in a facilitator to your company, storybrand.com slash private workshop. Kula, thank you so much for helping us bust these marketing myths. I'll be back next week. Can't wait. This is going to be the king of rabbit trails here. I, I have no interest in having a linear conversation with you at this point because I'm, I'm just, too, just too geeking out. Frank from House of Cards. Yes. Why do we want to follow him? Because on the surface, that character breaks so many rules. Yeah. Not a sympathetic character. Not a good character. Not a character that we should want to win. Not a character that saves the cat very often. In fact, in the very first scene, he kills a dog. Yeah. To put it out of its misery, but he kills a dog. Did the world change? Or am I just not sophisticated enough to see that they actually still are obeying the rules? I think, I mean, he's a classic antihero, but the reason that we love Frank and the reason that we want to see what he's going to do next, first of all, what a great character. Yeah, he's amazing. You, you never know what that guy's going to do next, but he's a truth teller. He's looking at the camera. He's telling us his innermost secrets. He's saying all the things out loud that we all secretly think he's a voice for our id. He's he's consistent. He's competent in some ways. But it taps into the sort of, to all of our sort of inner brat. Like on a certain way, we'd all love to behave the way that Frank is behaving. We're all secretly that driven and, and that selfish in our darkest selves. I think that's a very powerful mirror that's being held up. But I think that the power comes from the sheer delight in having somebody say what we all think. So there is a weird sort of identification because who hasn't felt that way about other politicians in Washington? That makes sense to me in terms of why we're not necessarily rooting for him, but I think we are. I think we're... Well, we're interested. I mean, we're interested. Yeah, definitely. I'm putting it together. I'm getting a little screenwriting lesson here. You have a character that somehow is integrated. They're competent. They're strong. They want something. They face challenges. These are the first really aspects of a story. We can't let them off the hook. So how do you keep the audience interested by continuing to throw challenge at them but not resolving this story? Well, I mean, that's that's the game, right? Yeah, why don't yeah, why don't we get sick of it? You know, every episode of Silicon Valley, the guys have some other conflict and yet I don't get sick of it. I'm like, "Oh, I want to watch how they resolve that. Oh, I want to watch how yeah. they resolve that." What are you doing to us? 
Well, I think when it's done well and when it's delightful, you don't get fatigued. The older I get, the quicker I fatigue. Yeah, you know And I'm not right. sure how long I'm in for. Like I sort of bailed on House of Cards halfway through season two and I thought, okay. Same here, same here. Now. Yeah. Even Game of Thrones, which I love, love, loved, by midway through season four, I sort of just, there was sort of a torture porn aspect of it that I wasn't strong enough for. I couldn't continue to do that to myself. But mm. I, I never stopped loving it. But my exhaustion got the better of me. You were with, with Sex in the City for a very long time. And that thing could have kept going and going and going. How did you keep people from giving in to fatigue? Well, on the catch, I'm so hyper aware of it. I'm so afraid of creating boredom in other people's lives. Uh-huh. And look, there's so much competition for people's attention right now that you just have to be the best you can possibly be and as engaging as you can be at all times. So I've reinvented in both seasons of the show. I've managed to reinvent the show both times. And if we're lucky enough to come back for season three, it will be a different show in season three so that the rules change. So we don't repeat ourselves Hmm. so that the relationship dynamics are different every season. We have new cast members coming in. I'm very aware of creating that cycle of fatigue because I've worked on television shows, you know, throughout multiple seasons for many years. And it's inevitable. You know what I mean? You just, the only way to do it is to reinvent the show every year. That's what I do. Two more questions for you. Both of them are big. Okay. What do you want an audience to feel when you're done? Let's walk away from television for a second. Though maybe, maybe the final episode of the final season, the final song in the musical, the final lines in the play, the final scene, or at least the climactic or obligatory scene in the movie. What do you hope the audience feels? Well, affection for the characters and the world. That's interesting. You say affection for the world. When I love a movie... When I love a novel, that's what I feel. I feel gratitude. I feel gratitude for getting to be a part of the overall narrative we all get to live within, which is a great mystery in many ways. I feel thankful for being alive. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I end up missing, you know, like we talked about Friday Night Lights. When that was over, I missed that world. I yeah. missed those people. Mm-hmm. And I kind of miss the feeling of what it felt like to watch it. So I immediately think like, all right, I can't wait to go and start from the beginning and feel that way again Hmm. i want to feel that much i want to feel that deeply i want to be able to laugh and cry in the same episode how do you reverse engineer that experience how do you do that are there things that you have to have in there no i don't think so i mean it's just music it's just composing music it's an intuitive subjective process i think it is to a certain degree i think the rules of storytelling are the pillars are there lending you support no matter what but so much of it is about taste and sensibility and what you find moving And what's going on in your life as the chief storyteller that you want to explore or that you want to express that sort of makes it alive. If it's alive for you, it'll be alive for the characters. And then the hope is for the audience as well. So there's no sort of reverse engineering checklist. It's just sort of, I wish I could describe it. It's like, it's just constantly checking in with myself throughout the process and wondering if it's making me feel anything and what is it making me feel and you know, I'll be in front of the writers in the writer's room and they'll pitch me an idea and I'll say, I don't feel anything. Here's mm. what I would love to feel in this moment. And then out of describing that feeling, generally coming from like, I'm in the point of view of Alice Vaughn or I'm in the point of view of Benjamin Jones, I'll sort of organically, just without even thinking too much about it, get to a, a what if statement. Like right. it's going to lead me to create a scenario that does make me feel a certain way. I don't know. That's, I guess, reverse engineering. Like, I want the scene to feel this way. Now let's build it so that... You get to this payoff. Yeah, you you get to that emotional place. You know, we're we're talking to 50,000 or so business leaders, and I think they've been fascinated because there's so much overlap between what you're talking about and they're communicating about their brand. There have been very few brands. Well, first of all, brands don't often have these obligatory or climactic scene kind of payoffs in their overall epic. I mean, when a customer buys a product, you want them to feel a certain way about buying that product. But in the life of a brand, you don't necessarily have that. And the only one that I can think of is the passing of Steve Jobs, which was not the end of Apple, of course, we all know that, but it felt like the end of an era within an organization. And yet people took to the streets with candles, with flowers, with you know, around Apple stores. They had a sense of gratitude. Is it possible to create a narrative in the life of your company that is inspired by and uses the tools that you're talking about to compose human emotions in in the ways that Jobs did. Have you ever given any thought to that? 
No, not not until you bring it up. And I, I think you've really tapped into something true and extraordinary. And I love that you're using this podcast to explore it. I mean, I did think about the Steve Jobs part of it in that there's so much bleed over between the product that he helped develop and that Apple provided us. Mm-hmm. That's a product like a, a computer, a MacBook Air, an iPhone that is all about us. That right. it's, a, it's a mirror. You look at it and your face comes back at you no matter what. So there's so much identification between the object and yourself. There's so much bleed over. You know, we're so addicted to the screen at right. this point that you, you don't know where the product ends and you begin, which I think is, you know, for somebody who makes that product, that's the ideal scenario. So here's what I would say, because it's my role as a storyteller and my role within Shondaland and within the world of the catch, you know, it's, it's not unlike the spirit of Christianity in a certain way in which I realize that my job at the end of the day is to serve. I'm here to serve the characters. I'm here to serve the story. I'm here to serve Shonda. I'm here to serve the audience and right. to, to take them on a journey. So in some ways, if I'm a company looking to establish, you know, brand-based relationship with my consumers, with my audience, I want to be there to serve and reflect them back at themselves in a way so that when they think of my product, they think, okay, this product, this brand is an extension of who I am. And yeah. there's nothing more powerful than that. Like when you love a product or a brand so much that you wear their logo as a t-shirt, you know what I mean? You, you're basically selling the audience themselves. Like, mm. here's how we can make you the most you you can be. You're selling them a better version of themselves. So we teach this yes. idea of, of actually communicating, defining, communicating an aspirational identity for yes. your customer and helping them live into that identity. It seems like Steve Jobs does that so well, as does Coca-Cola. I mean, if you think about Coca-Cola... Their sort of aspirational identity is somebody who embraces the difficulty of life with an optimistic attitude and a, and a sense of gratitude. They've defined that as an aspirational identity, and it's in you know the songs that they choose and the and whatever and, and all the images in their commercials. Absolutely, and I think brands are rewarded for that. It's so affirming to hear you you say that. I think we forget sometimes as business leaders that there's an element of being an artist here that only benefits our brand and benefits our customers, makes them better people. We get to transform human beings' identities by selling the simplest of products. I remember uh, recently I went to uh, a Home Depot to get a, a stud finder because I was putting in some shelves in the garage, and I saw Gerber Knives. And Gerber Knives is a knife company out of Portland, Oregon, who has this wonderful campaign where the, the commercials have you know a guy cutting bloody pant legs off of his jeans and, and riding a bull and underneath a boat trying to get a rope off a propeller. And I remember thinking, I need that knife. And, I, and then my, my executive brain said, no, you're, you're a writer. You don't need that knife. <laughs> but, I, but I wanted to buy into this aspirational identity. And a friend of mine actually gave me that knife later. Oh, wow. And it made me feel like a better person. It's just a knife. It's literally just a knife. But it's amazing that brands can have this narrative power, that they can help us transform and be better people. It's really true. You just end up feeling like your best self when they connect, when the brands connect with you in that way. And I think oftentimes... There's a lot to be said for presenting yourself in a, it's not about us, it's about you and how we can serve you yeah. way. Do you know what I mean? I think so many of us are looking for a kind of ego validation that we do make it about us before we make it about serving yeah. others. And that even thinking about the difference between how are we better serving the customers versus how are we putting ourselves out there? I think it's a valuable, it's something to look at. You can't go wrong making it about other people. Alan, this has been maybe my favorite interview we've ever done on the Building a Story Brand podcast. <laughs> I'm so grateful for your time. Love to have you back. Until then, tune in to The Catch, Alan's new show in its second season. Alan, can you give us date and time? Thursday nights on ABC at 10 Eastern, uh, 9 Central. All right. Well, I'm a huge fan. What an honor to reconnect. And uh, please come back on the show at some point. Thank you, guys. It would be such a pleasure, and I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks, Don. If you enjoyed what you heard in the interview today with Alan Heinberg, you can go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet to get a tool to begin immediately applying what you heard in the interview to your work right now. Go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. JJ, you missed something last week while you were traveling. Yeah. You missed an interview with Drew Holcomb. 
Oh, yeah. He did an interview I here. I did see the live Facebook concert. Yeah, I was came, actually watching Yeah, that. he came yep. over to the office, and he did three songs right yeah. there in our office. And then he came over, and he did a quick interview. He was yeah. promoting his new album called Souvenir, which, hold on. I've got it. Right here. <laughs> and it's fantastic. What I love about yeah. Drew, also, he's, he's an amazing artist, but he's a business guy. Yeah. He runs his career like a business. I mean, he, you know, a lot of artists don't know how to do that. They're, they're too artsy to be business people. He's so good at it. He's the business manager for his wife's career, successful in her own right, Ellie Holcomb, if you haven't heard of her. Anyway, we thought it would be fun since we had him in the living room at StoryBrand. We actually recorded it. Yeah. We thought we'd play a live track from Drew's new record, Souvenir, and also just play a little bit of the interview with him. Just a little business tip, a little business insight, if you will, yeah. from an artist. Since we got yeah. Alan Heimberg yeah, yeah. doing business insights from screenwriting, yep. why not Drew Holcomb doing business insights from music? Yeah. So here you go. Here's a little bit of uh, my interview with Drew and then a live performance here at StoryBrand. You got to fight for love. Fight for what you're dreaming of. You got to fight. Drew, welcome. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, glad to this be here. This is the on. first time we've done this. We're playing with a format uh, that we call the business of. Yeah. And so the business of music, the business of comedy, the business of acting, all that kind of stuff. So you're the first time, and you're the first great guest because you're not just a musician, an accomplished musician, you're also a business guy. Yeah. A <laughs> you love starting businesses. A serial entrepreneur, as my manager <laughs> says. <laughs> Which is not true for most artists. No, no, it's not. If it were, they'd probably be a lot more successful. I think so. They'd also be a lot more tired. Well, I want to talk about the business of music, and this thing has obviously changed. How long was it that the bottom just fell out of the music industry? Everything shifted, didn't fall out. Yeah, so I I think the most interesting statistic that I always give people to sort of explain what happened is in 1998, uh, the top 10 selling albums in the United States sold for a cumulative 112 million copies at an average retail price of $16. Wow. Fast forward 10 years to 2008, the top 10 selling records of that year sold a cumulative 12 million copies at an average retail price of $9.99. <laughs> uh, and it, it was all technology driven, you mm. know, uh, really two ways. The first was that people didn't have to pay $16 to buy an album they liked or, or a song they liked, really. They didn't have to buy an album. A record label could put one great single on an album, and the only way to get that single was to buy the whole album. The rest of the album could be terrible. But you had to pay sixteen bucks, so then it shifted to where you know Apple got involved, Napster got involved, made everything free but illegal. Apple created a, a legal way, which was sort of a band aid on a gaping wound, right. uh, and people were buying singles for ninety nine cents, and then thousand percent drop, and I mean a ninety percent. What did that fall do? Off. What did that do to? I know this something similar happened in books with Amazon, mm-hmm. and it turned into this world where we just lost full-time writers. I mean, there aren't very many full-time writers committed to honing a craft for 50 years, which is where you get good books. It's really like that 30th year sometimes yeah. where the artist is figuring out. They can't do that anymore. They have to go be professors or business people. They have to go speak. So what happens is we're losing sort of this cultural art of great literature. I would expect that in America, we probably will not produce any more really great literature. Yeah, that great is subjective. Right. You know, we're all going to think something that's crap is great. Yeah. Because it's all subjective. You know, it's relative. Is that same sort of thing happening in music? I mean, how do because there is still great. Well, so I think music the only the there. only difference is that the same thing that caused the downfall in music is also its savior, which is technology. So so the technology made music really cheap, but it also made music easy to make, way easier to make. Gotcha. So before in the old model, if you were a great artist you might not have the opportunity because the labels in the late 90s and really starting all the way in the, in the 80s were looking for a quick buck. They would develop four or five young bands, try to get a big hit, run with that band until no one cared anymore, and then do it all over again. So they weren't necessarily developing artists for the long haul. So you had a lot of young artists that the only way to make music, because it was so expensive to produce music, like if you were going to do a string section, it would cost you $30,000 to record string section for a record because you mm. had to use the union players at, at very expensive rates. Whereas now, technology is so good that a really good piano player can fake a string section on their keyboard for $1,000. Hmm. What I always say is because of the, the shift in technology, both the good and the bad, there's never been a worse time to make a killing in music. 
but there's never been a better time to make a living. Mm. So there's, there's way more people making music now professionally than there were at the height of the music business's success from my point of view. Well, living in Nashville, you just you know throw a rock and hit an artist here, and, and you hit somebody who's gifted and talented. And I'm amazed sometimes at how somebody's almost a household name. You go into a club, and they're incredible, and yet they're struggling to pay rent. Yeah. What are the different streams, revenue streams available for an artist these days? Yeah. Well, the primary one for most artists that are actually making a living would be touring. Now, that's also the most... Which, uh, which is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's the most, uh, the least amount of margin, profit margin, because it's the most expensive cash flow source. Explain that. What are the levels? I mean, there's you and the in your Volkswagen Golf going around. That's kind of how it starts. Taking yep. any coffee shop gig that you can get. Then you got a, a band. What are you paying? You know, this is a business podcast. Sure, so sure. I want to break it. I'm really curious. I want to break okay, it. Down. Yeah. So what I'll, are you paying I'll, that I'll band? Walk, I'll walk through a couple of different scenarios. So yeah, you, yeah. you start off. And you're making $500 a gig by yourself in a Volvo station wagon. And, you're and that's not even starting off. I mean, that's like 500 bucks a gig. Is like yeah, that's, somebody that's knows like, who you are, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, starting off, you're making nothing. Nothing. Yeah. $100 a gig. Or, uh, but I, had, I, get, I was fortunate enough to have a regular bar gig that paid me $300 every Friday to play covers for three hours. So I was making $1,200 a month at least. <laughs> rent. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, rent and gas money and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you go from making, let's say you have somewhat of a, a little bit of a name and you're making 500 bucks by yourself. Right, yeah. Then you're, let's say you're selling 150 tickets everywhere. So s small rooms and you're selling those tickets at 10 bucks, you're probably making a 60% of that money. And then you got to pay your band and you're paying them. If they're really young, you're paying them $125 a show. If you're somebody like me, you're paying your guys more like, you know, a couple grand a week. My, a couple grand a week that they're on the road, or do you hold oh, no, them no, no, even no, when no, you're no. not on the road? On the road. On the okay, road. gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people do pay. Like the big, huge acts will put people on a, on a salary or a retainer. So like for me, my, my nightly nut on the road went from $800 a night to now with a bus, with a band, with per diems and day rooms, et cetera, you're talking like a nightly nut of $5,500. 5500 bucks to get to the next city and do the next gigs. So you got to sell a bunch of tickets just to So cover. I don't make a dollar until dollar 5501. Right. And then I make 75% of that dollar because of commissions. So commissions is on every dollar. And you've got to get the band out there and get people excited and get put a good show so that the next tour that comes around they want to come see want you come again. Back. Yeah. So it, it is a business. I mean people don't oh, yeah. people the, think of it the, as art, but it's a business. The, you got to figure this out. The cost of being on the road go up as you get more successful. You know, because you go from being in a van and a trailer to being in a tour bus, and then you go. What's the bus? The bus is uh, oh, used man, to be a thousand bucks a night. Now it, it's like twelve hundred, sixteen hundred. Yeah, it's closer to fifteen, eighteen hundred a night. Yeah, with yeah. the driver and all that. Yeah, it's it's very expensive. So that's the touring side, and then the the record sales side is another big piece, and that has everything to do with who owns the master. So there's kind of different levels. There's if you're on a major label, you're basically getting a one time advance. Your piece of the pie is probably 12%, but you're getting an advance on that. 95% of record deals, that advance is the only money you're ever going to see from the yeah, record. Yeah, same with books. Yeah. Same with books. Then you have indie labels, which is usually like a profit-sharing deal where you pay for the record, they pay for the marketing, you split the money in some direction, 60-40, 50-50, however it works out based right. on that deal with no advance. But they're taking on all of the, the label might be taking on all the cost, or the advance is much smaller you know, and it's an advance on 50%, not 12%. Right. So that's a, that's a really great model for a lot of artists. Very few people do it the way we do it, um, just because I have a, a large tolerance for risk and my management team has a, a great capacity for releasing records. That's part of what they do. Right. Anyway, so we actually do it all ourselves. So I take on all the risk. I pay for the production. I pay for the marketing. And every record we make probably has a budget of the recording budget is somewhere between thirty and forty thousand dollars, which is still keeping it pretty lean. Mm -hmm. But we record quickly and efficiently because we're all been doing it for a long time. And then our marketing budget is usually a, sort of a moving target depending on the cycle, but can be anywhere from forty to a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Now that's over time. I'm not writing a check for all of that. But you're one forty, one fifty in by the time mm -hmm. that you figure you're done. Yeah. That now record. that record has multiple cash flow opportunities. So first off, is just hard sales. And explain you know. that. So if I buy your, you know, you've got Souvenir out today. So if yeah. I go buy the record, the record is called Souvenir. If I go buy yeah. this record today from iTunes, what yeah. is it on iTunes? Twelve ninety nine. It's, it's uh, nine ninety nine. Oh, nine ninety nine. Yeah. If I go buy that, how are you getting paid on that? Yeah. So the breakdown of that is that iTunes takes thirty percent. So basically, which is not horrible. Not horrible at all. 
Totally fair. Because I have international distribution with no physical cost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's pretty great. So $7 comes to me and I pay, artists pay a commission to their, for me, I, I own that whole piece. So I'm, I've got my band and producers all have a royalty rate, usually, you know, depending on, who, on, on the deal, but sometimes it's, you know, it can be two to 4% of the gross. And then you have the songwriters by law make uh, nine cents per song per record. So and that, see, that's fascinating dollar, to me. Yeah, because you you don't even know this. A guy, I wrote a poem, and a guy turned it into a song, and it's on hold with a country band. Yeah, <laughs> which is random. Yeah, it's completely surprised. But then he explained to me, yeah, if, if I think it's a little big town, yeah, and if they do it, I get a quarter of nine cents for every yeah or something. He explained it to me. I was like, okay, well that'd be nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there are people in this town, which basically means I get to go buy a new lawnmower. Right, but right. There are people in this town who make tons of money. Yeah. Writing hit songs and you've never seen them or heard of them. Yeah, and that's the that's the another revenue stream that what I'm talking about with the getting nine cents a song is called a mechanical royalty rate. So that's just on sales. The big money in songwriting is when a song becomes a radio hit, because then you're getting paid by the radio station. The radio station has to pay to play that song. Yeah, so like every time they play it, they've got to pay some money if they're a for profit radio oh, gotcha, station, okay. which most of the commercial stations are. Yeah. Now it doesn't sound like much, but if you're if you got a song that gets a million plays and you're getting a buck a play or whatever. I don't know what the rate is because I'm not really in that world, in the mm-hmm. country world. But yeah, I mean, most people would say... So there's still some money in, in music. Songwriting. If, yeah, in songwriting. It just, it's just gotten narrower and narrower, though, because yeah. what used to happen when people were selling all those records was those mechanicals that I was talking about were what you could live on. So if you, if you got a, a song cut by George Strait that wasn't a single and he would still sell a million records, well, that means you made $100,000. Hmm. Which is over two years, so you made you know fifty grand a year, and you didn't even have to be a single. Right. But that number, no one sells those amount of records anymore. Right. Very few people sell that amount. Of yeah, records. I had a I had a buddy who never made more than twenty grand his whole life. Wrote a hit song, and he was getting half a million dollar checks in the mailbox. Yep. Back in the day, it yeah, was, it was kind of fun. It's crazy. Now he volunteers at a bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his dad owned a bookstore. And he's like, yeah, I just really like it here. Yeah, Reminds me all. of my dad. I love it. <laughs> You're the right guy. That's awesome. That so the the other thing is, you had a song on a commercial, American yeah. Beauty. Yeah. Uh, off the last record was on a commercial. Beautiful song, by the way. Thank and you. you guys get paid for that, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's called a sink. Yeah, that's a sink. And that that has honestly been a huge part of our business. It's been a part of our, our sort of growth as a band in terms of finding fans. Yeah. We now, uh, over 10 years, have had over 65 sinks. That is awesome. And mostly on TV, a, a couple commercials like the one you mentioned. And a but couple, t- like a TV show? like a. Yeah, How I Met Your Mother, House, Justified, all the way down to Deadliest Catch and Teen Moms. I mean, it's, it's like all over the map. And, and do you have an, a specific agent that's just shopping that stuff for you? Yeah, yeah. There's different companies. Ours is based in L.A. that we work with. Uh, it's called Secret Road. It's basically they get paid when they land stuff, which is awesome. A gorgeous vagabond. She was sweet, but she was strong. She was an American beauty. As a business guy, you do more than just music. You, you're always starting. You, you and I have had some conversations. Of, yes. In fact, I, I think I was taking flying lessons one time. We had dinner, and you go, "Yeah, I actually used to fly a lot. I used to fly my plane around when I was a kid." And I'm like, well, like "How did you do that?" Well, I sold this Honda and I bought this thing, and then I ended up with a plane. <laughs> That's basically what happened. But you, you're a business guy, and you've done a bunch of things. You have a music festival. You're not doing it right now. But you had for a minute and may bring it back a golf tour. Yeah. Can you just tell our listeners about that? Because they're going to salivate over this. You're going to yeah, have to yeah. bring it back. Yeah. So I took my buddies one time. I took the tour bus and we went and played golf in a bunch of different cities. Yeah. And I was like, this is a great idea, like in general, not just for me and my friends. So yeah, the idea is like eight guys getting a tour bus. You go to bed, which is fun. You go to bed so. and na- yeah, you get on the bus and you know you're hanging out and go to bed on the bus and wake up in Savannah, Georgia, play golf all day, go out to eat, get back on the bus wake up in New Orleans, do it all over again, do it three or four days and never get a hotel, never get in a plane, never rent a car. And you just wake up at the next golf course. Yeah, you wake up, park in the parking lot next to the back. You did it a few times, right? Yeah, yeah, we've done it. And it's, plus, you know, any fans, they get to golf with you. You had Ben Rector out with you, didn't you? He hadn't done the the, the bus tour thing with me, but we've, we definitely do a lot of golf trips together. We're going to have to put together a story brand golf with Drew thing because <laughs> yeah, I know we're going to get calls on that. I love it. Uh, and the music festival, the music festival you said before we started recording is exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah, it's it's Moon River Moon out of R- Knoxville, right? Uh, in Memphis, yeah, out of Memphis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Moon River Music Festival, we started 
three years ago. We've done it three times, and it's it's a it's been really successful. But it's one of those things that it was a dream based on sort of wanting to create community, and also figure out a way to make make enough money out of it to be worth the time and energy. It's been very amazing and very exhausting because, yeah. you know, getting five thousand people to one place logistically, and getting ten bands and everybody happy and sound and weather and oh man, you know, it's just like <laughs> so many things that could go wrong yeah, and then lose fighting, your house fighting the fires all day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thankfully, we've we've been able to do it successfully and we're kind of dreaming right now about how to grow it. So we're taking this year off as we sort of expand the, the vision. My favorite is your subscription service. Betsy and I buy a lot of vinyl records down here at Grimey's down yeah. the street. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't even know about this until today you you can actually pay you twenty five bucks a month and you will send out a vinyl record of your choosing. Yep. So you're curating the music, and you have a thousand people on that list getting records every month. Yeah, yeah. That's called, just, where is that? What's that called? It's called Magnolia Record Club. MagnoliaRecordClub.com. Yep. All right. Yeah. If you want Drew to send you a vinyl record <laughs> every month, I'm literally going to sign up today for that. Okay. This is going to relate really to our listeners well especially anybody who's releasing a product or tends to release a product every year, a couple times a year. That's just promotion. Yeah, Getting energy around the release of a new record. There's a lot of parallels. What you're doing today is really interesting because you actually did a concert in the StoryBrand living room. You already done a concert this morning at a radio station. You'll do 12 concerts by the time you go to bed tonight. That's is that right. right? That's right. And it's all part of a promotion. Plus, you've taken over the state of Tennessee's Twitter feed, you're doing Facebook Live almost everywhere you go. You're over, Next, you go to country music television yep. down the road. And it works. I mean, by the end of the day, everybody on the internet knows Drew's got a record out. Yeah, that's or the hopefully, goal. Hopefully, that's the goal. Whether they buy it or not is, like, is, is, <laughs> is up to them. But our job is to make sure they know about it. When do you start planning today? When do you start planning everything you're doing today? When did that start? Probably three to four months ago is when we actually start putting... Uh, four months ago, as soon as the record's finished and you know what you have. I, mean, I think for me... The biggest thing is let's plan our marketing, but let's not make any decisions until we know what the product actually is. Yeah. So we know what the heart and soul of the record is, how we want to promote it, because I want it, the promotion to match the music. Three months ago is when we really sort of put everything together, but I mean, the the pulling it off is as late as yesterday, getting it all together. But. Do you sit around with a whiteboard and go, what's every possible way we can get the word out about this? Because I mean, taking oh, yeah. over the state of Tennessee's Twitter feed would have never occurred to me. How did that happen? Well, so we have been involved with them because of the festival. Gotcha. Um, sort of in terms of like the state of Tennessee, the Chamber of Commerce. When I put out my song, Tennessee, uh, I got a personal note from the governor, and we sort of parlayed that. And we're like, hey, the governor's paying attention to this. You know, you guys should too. Tennessee. Tennessee. I was born here and raised here. I'll make my grave here at home. Tennessee. So Paul and Sam and I basically sit down and we make, we dream and we make lists and we divvy things up and uh, we sort of come up with ideas and Paul has a whiteboard in his office. I'm more of a legal pad sort of guy. <laughs> um, can't take the whiteboard home with me, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we, we sit around and we dream and scheme and I'm one of those personalities though that's always paying attention and always watching yeah, yeah. and I say and that's how like the record club came about a friend of mine runs a record label and I saw them doing that and I thought that's really cool but I think if an artist curated if an artist it, curated so it, it yeah. would be more personal and feel less commercial yeah you know and, it, and that's been true our growth has been really really amazing and so paying attention all the time and then making plans to roll out records and this year has been especially intense because my wife put out a record in January mm-hmm. and we share the same management team she and I, because we're both doing similar things, we were able to bounce ideas back and forth. And, and so, of course, my idea is what will work is different because my fan base, or in other terms, my audience is different than hers. We just kind of help, you know, help each other. You're her manager. You're, you run. No, I'm just her business manager. Oh, your business. So I just manager. run. I just run the money for her. <laughs> <laughs> I pay the pay the band. And pay Ellie the bills. does great. Yeah. yeah, she just doesn't like to know a lot about all that. Yeah, you know. She wants like a, a quarterly update of like, am I doing okay? You know? I'm like, yeah, you can crush it. You're doing great. Yeah. Well, we wish you the absolute best. The album is called Souvenir. Thank you. It's out today. You can go get it on iTunes. Uh, you can also check out magnoliarecordclub.com if you want to subscribe. I'm going to do both today, download the new record and 
surprise my wife with a new vinyl. <laughs> Every month I'm just going to go, hon, I bought you a new record. So yeah. you can't tell her that I'm subscribed. I won't to tell her. <laughs> there you go. Drew Holcomb, uh, congratulations on all your success. We wish you a lot more success. Can't wait to see you at the Ryman again. We, if you haven't caught Drew on the road, you're going to need to get your tickets now because you're selling out lots of places. Where are you going? What are the cities that you're heading to on this tour? So basically this uh, spring tour is uh, southeast, then Texas, then up the west coast, and then up the kind of main artery of the East Coast, and then we'll be everywhere else in the fall. Tell your wife I say hi. I will. You Thanks too. for coming by the podcast Thanks today. Thanks for having me. Try a little tenderness, maybe some benefit of the doubt. Another person's point of view, try to listen and not to shout. Hold your opinions loosely, maybe you're not always right. Show a little mercy and hold on to love real tight. It's a wild world we're all trying to find our place in it. It's a wild world and no one seems to understand it. It's a wild world but there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it. Love is all I've got to give away. Love is all we've got to give away. Fantastic interview. Next week, we have another fantastic interview. Yes. We always have fantastic interviews. I know. I'm looking for the day. Next week, we kind of have a mediocre (laughs) mediocre, interview. It's an off week. We didn't really like them, but we just thought, oh, well, we feel bad. We should be We had to release another episode. Keep the machine moving. (laughs) (laughs) Ian Cron is with us next week. He wrote a book called, have you read this book yet? The Road Back to You? Yep. Yeah, I read it too. I think it's the best introduction to the Enneagram. Yeah. I have ever read. And so next week's episode is about the Enneagram. If you're an Enneagram fan, tune in. If you don't know what that is, what it is, it's a cult. Yeah. <laughs> and we invite you in. You're going to need to wear red I actually, sneakers. There was a piece of it when, before I read this book and really understood the Enneagram. You thought it was a cult? Not a cult, but it just was like, why do these people talk about this all the time? <laughs> like, I Oh, it's get just it. like a four to think that. Yeah. Did. Oh, it's like people. Well, <laughs> I'm a two. And, uh, but Ian and I are friends and I went to coffee with him and I said, I'm a two. And he goes, oh, well, then that means you're the way that you interact with Dawn. He specifically said the way you interact with Don is no, like this, this, and us. this. And I I went, yeah. That like it really was like a magician pulling back the curtain and it's weird. Yeah. It it was a little crazy, but it was true. He was like, This is how you interact you don't with Don. Believe, this is how you interact with Tim. You kind of don't believe the Enneagram when you're reading about it. You're like, this is dumb, this is dumb, until you get to your personality type. <laughs> and then, and then you're like, like, oh my word. Oh my word. This could word. not be more me. I'm not even a me. Yeah. I'm a category of human. Yeah. That, that, so I would even say for people for next week's interview, one, yeah. if you just want to, if you've never heard of the Enneagram before and never, you've not been around people who've talked about it, go online, read about it a little bit, and even take like one of the, they have kind of like short quizzes you can I don't take. believe those assessments work. They're fun those, to take. The quick ones, yeah, the quick ones, but it gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Right. You know, because if I think going in blind, you're going to get a ton out of it either way, but I think just understanding a little bit behind like what the Enneagram is and why why it's useful in the business world yeah. I think is really good. I mean, you know, to be really shallow about why you should listen to next week, and this yeah. isn't actually totally accurate, uh-huh. but what if there are nine different kinds of personalities and they're all working in your environment and you knew how to interact with them nine different ways yeah. to make them more happy? help them be more productive, and to just get along with them better. What if that were the case? We're going to sort of open up that Pandora's box next week. And uh, Ian is a fantastic author. His book, again, is called The Road Back to You. Let me just tease you a little bit with a clip from my interview with Ian Cron. One of the things that makes the Enneagram so powerful is is it doesn't just describe traits. It, mm-hmm. it also identifies the underlying motivations that drive the way that people think, feel, and behave. So in the case of a seven, right. what is it that's driving all this optimism? You know, what is it that's driving all this future thinking? I can't wait to learn or do the, you know, go naked skydiving. I just can't wait, right? It's the need to avoid psychological and emotional pain. So if you want to go to somebody and uh, look for a good ear while you pour out your foreness, right? right. You know, all the <laughs> angst, you know, that you have about something. Right. The seven is eventually going to say, can we go get ice cream? Thank you.
All right, so that's next week. Yeah. It's going to be good. And you say you're a two? Yeah. All right, I'm a four, but I think I might be a three with a four wing or a four with a three wing. Yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed about my four-ishness, <laughs> so I want to be more of a three, but Ian's a four. This language is what made me not want to be a part of things because okay. everybody would walk around and go, oh, yeah, I'm a three with a four wing. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, and you're obsessed it's like a, with Yeah, this. it's like a club. And so that's why I said, I think you should go read a little bit about it before next week's episode. Well, but he, he does a great job explaining Amazing. He goes through, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, I mean, not yeah. only is the book a great intro, next week's episode is the great intro. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, if you love the interview with Alan Heinberg and you say, I want to know what this guy's doing next because I love Sex in the City or I love this or that, his new show is called The Catch. Once again, it's on ABC on Thursdays at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, and it's a fantastic show. You're going to love it. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. (laughs) 